Hey, Nora. Hey, Sandy. What's going on on this, the scariest of weekends? Mm -hmm. Well, by the time people are listening to this, they will like not even remember Halloween because I think Mariah Carey will have taken over everybody's social media feeds, radio feeds, (laughs) Spotify feeds. Uh, we love Mariah Carey season. <laughs> it's I'm nice. all about Mariah Carey season. Let's go. I am also about that. But yes, you're right. I was out on the trick or treat beat tonight and it was kind of fun. I have to say my, <laughs> my favorite thing to do on Halloween is to look in other people's apartments. That is creepy, Nora. That's weird. Is it? Yeah, 100%. (laughs) Oh. I mean, I'm going to be thinking differently about the one apartment I saw with two tusks on either side of their fireplace. That was a surprise. Yeah, that's weird. And I want to be clear that I I really do believe that this is creepy, but I also probably would also (laughs) find that interesting. But I wouldn't say it out loud on the podcast. So that, everyone, (laughs) is the difference between me and Nora. It's very slight, it's a very slight difference, but very clear lines uh, are drawn. It's so good that you're underlying that difference because I think it'll help in this episode. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> so before we get into it, though, let's show some gratitude to the people. Let's give the people some love. Yes, we have so many people to thank um, who have changed their donation or donated to us for the first time. And so thank you so much to Leah, Rosario, E. Marie, Roisin and Pete, and Rejoar. Thank you so much for your support. Thank you so much. Before we start, I have to mention something. So last week, um, I made a comment about Martina Navratilova. Navratilova. Uh Uh-huh. And saying, who the fuck is this person? (laughs) Uh Uh-huh. We heard from some folks who may be part of the Gen X generation who were like, Nora, how do you not know who she is? And so I just want to say, okay, she was a pioneering athlete who was a killer tennis player, which makes her anti-trans comments even more problematic. And so I want to identify that we're just a bit different generation and, 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 didn't, and didn't know who she was. And uh, as the two millennials uh, hosting this podcast, we want to sincerely apologize for again forgetting Generation X. Yeah, I mean, like we live in the shadow of Gen X and I live with someone who's Gen X. So, I mean, fuck. (laughs) (laughs) I know. (laughs) And we're close to it. Like we're we're really we're on the upper end of the millennial scale. And, um, you know, (laughs) but I mean, it's true. And their music is great. Yes. The music is really good. So thank you for that. Okay. Sonora. Yeah. The other day, I'm like, I'm on Twitter, you know, doing the thing that I do on Twitter, which is not usually actually tweet, but just lurk, looking at what's going on, lurking, reading the news, seeing what people are uh, responding to. And I saw that you posted something, nine words that had just exploded and generated uh, what seemed like novels of thought. Um, And I was a little confused by it. Mm. But I also think that that experience, which we'll be clear about in a second, 
really kind of sums up my current frustration and fears about what the internet has become, which I think is a way to really reduce really complex ideas into binary quibbles um, that just don't really reflect the complexity that we need to have really good conversations with one another, all mediated through these private corporations um, that really make a lot of money off of us, you know, really become reducing these really complex ideas and quibbling with one another about them. Mm. Yeah. So you must be thinking of the tweet where I posted, so you said nine words. So it was like, my lunch is so good. I can't wait for. <laughs> that's, that's, that's all I got in nine words. Did you post a nine word tweet <laughs> like that, that generated the, the amount of discussion that I'm talking about? Let me see. No, it wasn't that. Let me think. Um, <laughs> systemic racism and colonialism is Canada's bloody core period. That's nine words. It is. And you would think that something like that would generate a lot of like really uh, good heated discussion. But n- no, it, it wasn't that one. OK, uh, let me try again. Um, the weather today is nice, but I want snow. <laughs> That's nine words. Uh, no, but it may have been similarly innocuous. Oh, oh, oh I right, right, right. Uh, it should be illegal to drive your kid to school. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> there we go. Nora, tell the people what happened. Okay. So the public facing story is I tweeted, it should be illegal to drive your kid to school. That's, that's the public facing story. The private facing story is that my kid's school got in agreement with CAA and decided to take over all of the pedestrian access to the school and have grade sixes manage people driving their kids to school. And we were then on the road and dodging cars. And I couldn't believe how much of a mess it was. That was the backstory, but it didn't matter because what I said was it should be illegal to drive your kids to school. And that those nine words <laughs> sparked off uh, quite a bit of discussion into what your meaning was, which mm-hmm. you know uh, then led uh, to to a lot of um, condemnations of you, uh, and then led to you know people people started messaging me, being like, "Why why do you still associate with this person?" Because he said that driving your kids to school should be illegal. People were like, Sandy, will you continue to associate with Nora Loretto? I, was like, <laughs> I mean, as we said at the top of the show, we're really similar. Like Nora just says <laughs> things out loud that I really keep inside deeply. So mm. <laughs> the answer is yes, I will continue <laughs> to associate with Nora Loretto. Um so yeah, tell us what, what happens next. Like what am I actually referring to? What what happened with this kind of angry response and why Nora explain why 
Oh, my God. Well, I think we're going to explore the why because I actually am not totally sure on the why. The what is, yeah, so it was, you know, the morning, I'm listening to The Current. Uh, This tweet is actually wedged between several other tweets that have nothing to do with school or driving kids to school or anything like that. And um, and I'm just like, you know, still angry at what I had seen that morning. The night before, I watched two kids almost get hit by a car backing up while we were on pickup. And, you know, I go, you know, for context, I go to a neighborhood school. So everybody is in walking distance by definition. And, and so, you know, people are not driving the distances that, for example, I drove to high school where I was bused. And I know what it's like to have to go 30 kilometers to high school. Like, I've been there also. And, um, and so I just, you know, it's like a throwaway treat, a tweet, like so many of my fucking tweets are, and it became an issue. I mean, you know, to put it into perspective, like the last time that I got into a hockey issue, um, I had probably 1200 responses on Twitter, which is a fucking lot. Like if you hit 30 responses, you're like, whoa, there's a lot of people responding to me right now. But that was the last hockey thing. The Humboldt thing uh, reached uh, north of 6,000 responses. So, I mean, just so many that I couldn't read them all. Uh, And this tweet elicited more than 800 responses and many messages after the fact. And still to this day, I mean, I posted a video of myself after a party the other night and someone was like, you're an ableist. And... That was that was some of the response. And so the response was kind of like carved out in three different ways. One was that I did not consider kids or parents that cannot walk or bike. The second were people angry that I attacked cars. And the third were my f- favorite were people who were angry that I didn't consider inclement weather, which to those people, I want to say, fuck you. Like I live inclement weather like very fucking much. More than this lady in Seattle who was really, really mad at me. Jesus. And I know. And, and you know, in some, like, obviously, I actually meant busing should not be illegal. So the, the tweet does come off, like, improper because I, I do think that kids should be bused and that buses should be free and all this stuff. But it really got kicked into something quite separate from what I said. And it put me into this world of, well, don't even tell me you didn't intend this. You said it. And so it doesn't matter what your intentions are. And then because I had, you know, an hour later or 45 minutes later, I put another tweet about this research that I have read before about what what kind of transportation allows a kid to really understand their neighborhood. And the research says it's biking. I did not say that everyone should bike to school. My kids have never biked to school. I never biked to school. I don't know why, like, anyone would say that I'm saying everyone should bike to school. But I just think it's interesting that it's biking and not walking, not taking a bus, not driving that allows a child to understand their neighborhood the best. And then people were just like, fuck you, you fucking classist, ableist, racist, colonial bike lover. (laughs) And I was like, what the fuck just happened? This is really weird. Yeah, I thought the whole thing was very bizarre. I, I think the number one bizarre thing, which we should come back to, was that I actually did not see this tweet as it was happening. Someone who follows you on Twitter and interacts with you you're probably the, the account that I interact with the most, actually. Oh, thanks. Um, yeah, you know, <laughs> you're always there tweeting. <laughs> so, <laughs> yep. you're, you're very available. Um, you're probably the account that I interact with the most. I actually didn't see that on the day that you posted it while it was going viral. I saw it on this on day two of virality. And I thought, how strange um, that 
Twitter is showing me this now. And it was showing it to me not as your original tweet, not as a tweet that people that I follow responded to, but as the original tweet, somebody responding, you responding to somebody else responding about the original tweet. So it was showing me a conflict, essentially. Right. Which I think we should come back to. But in reading the first original tweet, uh, I my initial thought, as someone who grew up quite poor and very far away uh, from schools sometimes that I went to because I was in this uh, weird program, um, you know, my, my, my experience of getting to school uh, as a person in a family uh, in which one of my parents do not drive uh, was either getting bussed, which is what I thought you were really talking about when I read the tweet. I was like, oh, you're talking about getting bussed instead of people individually taking their kids to school. That was my immediate assumption. Uh, I've experienced uh, taking public transportation to school um, and uh, either receiving receiving uh, the ability to do that through um, working myself or getting some sort of subsidy for it. Uh, and I've experienced uh, walking to school and walking to school both in a neighborhood where my school was uh, like maybe three or four kilometers away and walking to school in Brampton where I had to like cross like uh, the the mouth of a highway, like a, an on-ramp to, to the highway because I had like missed a bus <laughs> or something like that. Right. So as someone who like basically has never been driven to school and grew up quite poor, I could not, I, there was not in the, my immediate assumption was not that you were, and because I know you maybe also, my immediate assumption was not that you were talking about um, getting to school in a way that was like, you must be living right next to school and, and walking there or biking. My immediate assumption was that you were saying that that we needed a better way to figure out how to get kids to school societally because this car thing wasn't going to work. But a lot of other people had a very different immediate assumption. And I, I, I don't know how people come to, to know about this tweet, but I wonder if it is because of the way that it be, gets positioned to you when you see it um, delivered to you. Like, like I said, when Twitter delivered it back to me on my screen a day after uh, it had already been had quite a bit of uh, excitement and response, it was delivering it to me with a ready-made conflict for me to respond to if I wanted to. And I wonder if that has something to do with the assumptions um, that, I mean, like I said, it was a nine word tweet, like to, to pull out so much meaning, like you want kids to walk or like you, you, you don't think about disabled students or like that you think that biking is the only answer to pull out those meanings from this nine word tweet is really like there's something really fascinating going on <laughs> just from a communication theory perspective mm. if 
the medium that you're using encourages people to fill in the blanks and the, and f- in filling in those blanks position you as opposite to them. Yeah, yeah, I saw exactly that. And so this episode is, of course, not just like rehashing whether or not it should be illegal to walk your kids to school or drive your kids to school or go to school or not go to school. I mean, like, regardless of like the the way that I decided to talk about this in terms of legality, illegality, I did see one tweet that got liked a lot, like almost 2000 times from someone saying white people always reach to illegal versus legal. And we should be thinking about that. And I'm like, oh, that's interesting. (laughs) That's a a tweet that's making me think. So thank you for that. But beyond that, um, yeah, it was it was very strange because there was waves and, and I've gone through this a couple of times. So I've seen what these waves look like. The first wave is people interacting with the tweet itself. And because it's people I follow and people who follow me, it's like, yeah, Nora or fuck you, Nora, I live 30 kilometers from school. And I can be like, yeah, I hear you. I mean, I should have said buses should be free. Yeah, it's expensive to bus my kid. It's like, yeah, it should be free. Okay, we agree. Or what about disabled kids? And it's like, I I mean, I assume it's implicit, but I guess it's maybe not implicit. But yes, disabled children should obviously have the right to drive to school, uh, whether it's, well, ideally through busing that is accessible and available and free. And if not, that, of course, the spaces are liberated by parents of children who are not disabled to allow for disabled children to have access to the school, which is the problem that we see at my school all the time. But that so that was wave one. Wave two was like oddly connected to Alberta. So like the time change meant that a couple of hours later, all of these Alberta replies were happening and they were not all in the same vein. It was just like on like they were all following the same networks. And so it must have all been popping up in the same feeds. And so it was people in Alberta talking about how busing is very expensive and how they live so far away from school and all this kind of thing, which, again, was like, fine, you're engaging with the, the conversation. And I appreciate that. And that's all totally good. And and so I tweeted this like right in the morning because I had just done the school drop-off thing, which was a nightmare and scary and annoying. And um, the Alberta thing happened early morning, like late morning, early afternoon. And then I had supper and I get back to my phone at night and it's like, whoa, this has hit the United States. And it hit a whole bunch of different communities in the United States. But by and large, it was just like, the the overwhelming message, regardless if people were looking at this through a disability lens or looking at this through a class lens or looking at this through a I love my fucking car lens, because all three were totally present, the response was just kind of like, fuck you, which again is fine. But then I wonder, like, why that? Why that? Why that tweet? Why? Why? That, why did the, the, the machine need that? to make people really fucking angry for a day on a certain issue. Um, and I, I don't know the answer to that. And I, and I've been really reflecting since it's happened. Like when we see tweets from people we do not follow, we do not know, we don't know the context. We don't know who they are. They might be missing information. And then you're going to infer information that's not there. Uh, you can either infer positively like, Oh, obviously this person didn't mean to not mention all circumstances or fuck this person they're literally calling for genocide which is what a couple of people actually said to me and it was like oh shit this is twitter like this is what twitter does isn't it like this is like the way that it it 
stimulates, I guess, engagements uh, or fluffs engagements and fakes engagements to just make sure that people are really angry about something. And it didn't matter what I said. I couldn't make anything better with the strangers I was communicating with. Obviously, the people who I knew or the people who I have some sort of interaction with who are upset about the tweet, I was able to communicate with them. And, and whether or not they agreed with me in the end, not agreed with me, but were like agreed with what I was saying or will agree to disagree or fuck you nor on this or you're having a bad day or, or whatever the way to understand it. The folks that I didn't know, there was literally no way of having a conversation. And so to this day, I'm still getting people just saying – fuck you ableist, fuck you bike supremacist <laughs> on my tweets that have nothing to do with anything. And I'm just like, I'm sorry, what are you talking about? Why are you still talking about one of fucking 54 tweets in a day that I sent that I, I don't know. It was very weird. And it definitely made me think a lot about what social media is like, where social media is at right now. I think, um, as I saw it, noticed it, um, decided not to enter the foray because again, that line between me and you, you know, the, the thing that explains our difference, um, <laughs> I was really started to think deeply about what this means more broadly. If social media, um, is doing this, uh, is taking like phrases and, or things that people say and reducing them to these, these polls, uh, wherein we perform our frustration and anger at one another on social media. And I think even our experience around um, uh, talking about the Green Party a few weeks ago uh, is mm. is um, an, another example of this because, you know, I when I was speaking, I said, you know, this white person over here said something which is racist. And that turned into Sandy is a Zionist, <laughs> which, <laughs> which is, a, you know, there's a, a bunch of leaps that you have to make to get there. And it is, it's really weird to like try to go back and forth on arguments that aren't, that really have no basis in anything that any position that I hold, like what, what what am I protecting here if I engage in this argument? What phantom idea of myself? And um, does that in some way reify that phantom idea of myself? I don't know. Very strange. But as I'm thinking about it, I'm like, if this is happening, if this is what Twitter is doing and other social media um, uh, um, companies are forcing um, forward, I'm... <laughs> I, that makes me really, really pessimistic, which is hard to make me. I'm not a very pessimistic person. It makes me very, very pessimistic about how this is closing off our ability to have really necessary, really complex conversations. And what I mean by that is I, through seeing this experience that you are having and through watching this happen in multiple ways online have started to think uh, really deeply about my own political formation, like um, coming into consciousness and, um, you know, forming my own principles around, uh, you know, things like, like um, access to uh, reproductive justice, to, 
um, to my own principles around gender generally, um, my own thoughts around white supremacy. And thinking back about how many difficult conversations, how many arguments, how many really complex discussions that would have taken place over long periods of time, usually, in order for me to really deepen my principles, led to me being who I am today. And the, the really important values and principles that I hold very dear to, to being the like essence of who I am, a lot of that happened through really complex conversations, discourse, argument, in which you have to be able to hear more than you're wrong, I'm right. You have to be able to hear this is a complex issue for which you need to understand more than just one sentence, for which you need to understand far more than just nine words. And, you know, I, I, I'm sitting back seeing this and I'm just like, Jesus, what does this mean for our ability to engage in, in these conversations that literally change people's minds and allow us to more creatively forge ways forward um, that really dismantle the systems of oppression that are harming so many of us. That to me is of the most dangerous things that are facing us right now. Well, and I imagine the discussions that you were having or that you're thinking about didn't just happen like on one issue, like one vote, one motion, one campaign, but that these things actually evolved through multi-period of time, multi-week, multi-month, multi-year struggle alongside people who perhaps at the beginning, perhaps the beginning, the middle or the end you were unaligned with. And that you were able to reassess, assess, reassess, assess in a way that like to have that kind of conversation online is just completely impossible. And I don't know that it was always impossible, but it feels certainly impossible now. Like something has really shifted, I think, as as uh, the Twitters and the Facebooks and the Instagrams have like matured into these like um, uh fucking conglomerate money-making beasts that they are into really forcing us to have certain types of conversations. There's something about, I don't know if it's me who's changed or Twitter that's changed. (laughs) And I, I think it's a little bit of both, but I find Twitter really difficult lately. Like I've been tweeting a lot less because I just, it feels as though I'm not actually communicating with other people in the same way that it once felt like I was really communicating with other people. Does that Mm -hmm. make sense? Yeah, I feel that as well. And, um, like the, the problem with Twitter is there's people who, you know, in real life, there's people who you've never met in real life, but who you feel like, you know, and you probably do know, like, I mean, the internet friends that you have are probably not all cops or even any of them are cops and you might direct message with them or you might engage with them consistently over a couple of years and you have this relationship with them. And then there's just like the rest of the world who you have no idea who they are. And maybe they've got excellent politics or maybe they are cops (laughs) and, I really have no idea. And I find that really difficult because 
if I'm going to engage in a good faith conversation with someone who I know personally or someone who I've known through the platform over many months or many years of engagement, that's going to look completely different than someone who I've never met. Uh, certainly someone who I've got no mutuals with. I mean, when you start to see all these names of people who you like, they're not following, you're not following any mutual people. It's just like, why in the fuck are you engaging with me? Like, what, what are you, what do you think you're accomplishing by engaging with this stranger on, in this situation, a question of like car culture? Is it supposed to make you feel better? Is it supposed to make me feel better? Is it supposed to advance anything collectively? Is there some sort of vanguard position that exists out there, which there does not, by the way? Like a lot of these replies weren't even in the same country. And so, I mean, 90% of the replies that I got were like, what the fuck? Have you ever been in fucking Rosetown, fucking Massachusetts? And it's like, what the fuck is Massachusetts? Like, no. <laughs> like, why? Maybe I'm not talking to you. Like, just because I'm speaking in English doesn't mean I'm fucking talking to you. Doesn't mean I'm talking to you directly. Doesn't mean I'm talking to you in fucking Seattle or fucking... Ventura or fucking Knoxville or all of these towns that I've only fucking heard of, you know, it's just so bizarre. Right. And it becomes overwhelming because there's literally no capacity to have a conversation. Cause if you do try to have a conversation with some of these people, it's just like, nah, fuck you. You're fucking whatever. And I mean, my most recent experience has been about a specific issue, but I mean, it could be about any, any issue. And I think about like what happens when the right assumes all of our language and they assume all of the meanings of the words that we have and make it impossible for us to have conversations without being worried that the words we're using are now right-wing dog whistles. And what I think about when I'm thinking about that is specifically like just how fast like the AOK symbol became a white supremacy symbol <laughs> and how like you could use the symbol and people would be like, you're a white supremacist and be like, whoa, what the fuck? What? But at the same time, you actually could identify white supremacist by who is doing that symbol. And the left doesn't have any co cohesive, generalized control over language. And we will get to a point where nothing will mean what it means. Like we're going to get into this world of postmodern language where it all is coded and the language that I use, and, you know, I'm talking about English, right? The, the English that I use might be a completely different English that you might use, but we're all in the same social media channels. And then all of a sudden we're in this fucking world where it's like, well, your intent doesn't matter. What it said is, is this, and this is how I perceived it. And that's what matters. And it's like, that is a zero sum game that doesn't get us anywhere. And in fact, it actually hurts us. So what you said there makes me think of uh, two things. One is that um, the right is really good at rhetoric and the left uh, is not. And let me return to that. But first address um, that, you know, this person who's saying to you, Massachusetts, won't you think of the Massachusetts? Um, Massachusetts. <laughs> Massachusetts. The, I the don't know. <laughs> won't you remember those of us from Massachusetts? Um like imagine that conversation in real life. If you, if Nora was like really serious about this, right? Like there's nothing actually wrong with saying, remember those of us from Massachusetts. There's nothing wrong with that. But if this was a conversation in real life where let's say we're, I don't know, arguing a motion on a union floor and Nora says, I want our union to adopt the position that it should be illegal to drive your kids 
to school. And friend of Nora, uh, friend or like uh, sibling of Nora through work, <laughs> uh, <laughs> comrade, s- comrade gets up to say, "Have you never even been to Massachusetts? Like, do you know what it's like for us out there? Like, how dare you?" Nora could then respond and say, "Oh, I." No, I, I totally understand the weather in Massachusetts is really intense and that schools are really far away from each other. In fact, I'm from fucking Quebec City. Like, wouldn't you have it? And would be able to further clarify her nine word submission uh, to say, that's actually not what I'm talking about. We need to th- think deeper about this. What I'm saying is that we have a crisis in the way that we uh, that we the choices that we make around how children get to school and the choices that we make around transportation. And the other person could be like, oh, that's what you're talking about. Sorry. Okay, great. Well, actually, here's what I think about that next. But what happens on the internet is that that person says, won't you think about the people from Massachusetts? Nora says, yeah, I mean, like, that wasn't my point. So, like, you know, here's the clarifying piece. And then that person ignores that and says, look at this person who forgets all the people from Massachusetts. And our ability to have complex conversations or to go deeper on a topic disappears. Mm -hmm. Like that's what's happening online right now, which makes it so weird. Like it makes it's, it's not how real conversations are had. And it really reduces our ability to have really good discourse. The other piece around rhetoric is that the right, and they love this. I mean, they think it's funny. Like they um, take ideas like whether it's, you know, uh, critical race theory or uh, cultural appropriation or um, uh, uh, what's another Being woke. Being woke, you know, all sorts of different types of uh, rhetoric and they twist the words to mean something else. And then we on the left and, you know, the center right media like accepts it like just is like okay cool this now has a new meaning (laughs) and just starts start talking about things as though they have new meaning and then again we are placed into this uh this this like weird battlefield that's been set up that's like you know we hate critical race theory and then other people being like we love critical race theory and it's just like nobody knows what critical race theory is really like (laughs) It's like, as, as a scholar of critical race theory, it's like none of you are talking about critical race theory. And it's just, it's, it's bizarre. It's set up to have a meaningless conversation because we're not actually arguing about anything real. And so what I think that leaves us on the left to really think about is like, what the fuck are we doing when we respond to ridiculous rhetoric and give it credibility by responding as though it's real. Yeah, it, that really makes me think of like the questions of binary versus nuance. And so we, we exist on these binary platforms. They have their origins in literal binary code, right? Zeros and ones all mashed together to make a computer function. 
And all of our commands are binary. And so when we, you know, take that into the social media world, it's like this person's an idiot. This person's not. I agree with this person. I disagree with this person. Every opinion. This is a good opinion. This is a bad opinion. There's like you can be nuanced online, but you really have to try to be nuanced. And, you know, if you're just trying to blow off smoke or say something ridiculous or you get caught in the trap of social media, you might be binary, which is fine. I mean, that's how a lot of us use these platforms. That's the way the platform elicits us to use them. But there's no binary thinking on the left. Like the history of the left is nuanced debate on very specific issues. And if you like from everything from taxation to union control to the fucking dictatorship of the proletariat to uh, publicly funded fucking public services, these are all nuanced positions that depending on where you are on the left, whether you're an anarchist or an anarcho-socialist or a communist or a Trotskyist or a social democrat or you know, can keep going to the fucking center. We're all talking about shades of gray because at the end of the day, we quote unquote all agree that things should get better for average people. And then, of course, we can debate, um, uh, you know, what that actually means. But the binary thinking is right wing thinking. It's gay marriage is wrong. It's it's fucking correct for women to stay home. It's it's good to make lots of money. It's it's good for children to fucking shut up and obey their parents and all this stuff. And so when binary thinking infects the left, then we're we're fighting these like very unrooted campaigns, arguments, discussions that, you know, never consider capitalism, never consider colonialism, never consider how heteropatriarchy like changes our world setting. And it's just like, you're fucking wrong. And the right answer is I'm going to drive to school for all these fucking reasons because I'm poor and poor people drive cars, which is like, what are you fucking talking about? That's not a progressive argument. That's maybe your own experience. So that's not we're talking about utopia here, folks. (laughs) Like, what the fuck? Um, and, and so, you know, it's one thing for for me to have a discussion like this because I'm very used to it. I'm very comfortable with it. And, yeah, 100 people can tell me to fuck off and I it doesn't matter. But for a lot of people to have 800 people telling you to fuck off is very, like, alienating, isolating and confusing because it's like, whoa, I must have really been wrong or I re- must have really fucked up. And the only way you can respond to that is to then say, well, I was wrong. And therefore, the right thing is the opposite of what I said. Again, binary thinking which is just such a cancer uh, on the left. It's such a cancer, poisonous way for us to imagine discourse to emerge because it does not emerge like that in struggle. In struggle, it takes years and years of working alongside different kinds of people to change your own opinion, have your opinion change other people and allow consensus to emerge from us to have these 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 actual real life conversations. And you can have some of these conversations online, but by and large the online world you know it 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 it's it scorns nuance and it chases binary thinking and a lot of us get caught in those traps. I think that the takeaway for me for all of this is that is not that, you know, like delete your Facebook account, delete your Twitter account, exist only IRL, um, be really lonely during a pandemic. (laughs) That's that's binary thinking. (laughs) That would be (laughs) binary thinking. But it is my my takeaway would be that we have to um, and I've started to do this for sure, uh, really think hard about what we are using these social media platforms for. There might be a time where I want to have a binary discussion 
on Twitter something that I know might be provocative. And so I'll put it there in order to have some sort of live debate that I think might get picked up somewhere that will help other people understand an issue. But it would have to be a strategic decision for me to say, I think that this needs to be, this is a discussion that needs to be had on a platform like Twitter in order to accomplish whatever goals I have in having that discussion out in public in the first place. In the same way that I have those very uh, strategic conversations with myself, whenever I go to discuss something on the news, whenever I put out a press release or I'm trying to get media attention on any particular issue, or even when I'm writing an article, an op-ed in, say, the Huffington Post versus the Toronto Star versus um, the Canadian Center for Policy Alternatives, uh, um, um, the monitor, you know, like those are different audiences and I would have different strategic approaches to discussing any of those things, um, any particular item on any of those different media, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, TikTok, whatever. These are all forms of media that we need to be critical about how we are engaging with them, what we're saying on them, and what our purpose is for using them. If our purpose is just having conversations with people, I think we should think really deeply about that. Because would we just have random conversations with people through CP24, you know, through CTV, through uh, global news? Like, I don't know that we would. Um, And well, I know 100% that we wouldn't. <laughs> uh, and that's not to say that you can't have any sort of like, please don't be binary about this either. Uh, but what I'm saying <laughs> is that, like, you have to think about what is lost. You know, like, am, am I going to only have discussions with members of my family or my closest friends using these tools that have their own purposes and are are going to shape the way that I communicate with people and what sorts of conversations are possible. In short, be strategic, be strategic. Always think that, you know, like this is, this is not a neutral medium. So you should be strategic about how you're using it. For me, I, I see more social media platforms as a place for people to just kind of blow off smoke and express themselves. And if someone says something that I'm surprised by or disappointed by, and I know them, I definitely try not to dunk on them. I definitely try to just let them know quietly, like, oh, I'm not totally sure you've thought this out, and then let a conversation come from that. And I think when you start to think about the the need to avoid binary thinking online, you do open that space up in a very significant way for other ways of thinking and other kinds of analyses to enter into a discussion. And then to also allow for people to just fucking say, like, you know, the first thing that comes off the fucking top of their head, which, you know, if 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 you disagree with it or you don't like it, like, you can say that to someone or not. Like, it's up to – it's it's <laughs> – it's 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 not real life. I mean, it's it's curated life, and there is some real life in that. But it's it's all in the pursuit of this these platforms making money, and so I've I've certainly been thinking a lot more about how I interact with other people on these platforms. But 
I think far more important important than that is recognizing that we are also being manipulated by these platforms all the time. And when you feel elicited into responding to something or when I feel like I've been elicited into responding to something, I always try to see what exactly I'm feeling like I'm responding to. Am I responding to CTV News talking about how a cop having a quote-unquote relationship with a child was a relationship rather than talking about statutory rape? Okay. Or am I feeling goaded into correcting someone talking about whatever and not mentioning all of the different ways that that issue might play itself out? Those are two totally different ways of engaging. And... I think that, you know, of course, we're performative to some extent on social media. We're not exactly our authentic selves unless you're on all the time and you're probably more authentic than not. But these spaces are created to to create money and they are created to crush radical organizing and radical organizers. And we need to really be engaging with them, understanding that and understanding that things that we might refer to. I mean, this is not a comment on what I went through, but on other things that I've seen, things that we might call lateral violence within certain movements. It's like, what is the point of having these discussions online in this way? What is like, is the goal to get rid of the issue that I am opposed to, or am I just ridiculing someone? And if it's just to ridicule someone, like you have to step back and be like, through ridiculing someone, I am making Twitter money. Is that at all fucking reasonable? Is that moral? Can you justify that? Or is it just about catharsis? And if it's just about catharsis, then like fucking find something else, find some great memes, find some hilarious tweets, like tweets don't always have to mean anything. But I don't think we're thinking about them in those terms. And we really need to because I agree with you, Sandy, I think things are getting way worse out there.